theyeshiva.net. I want to address today a fascinating question that comes up when one learns the Torah portion of Maseh, which is actually the last portion of the Book of Numbers, the conclusion of Sefer Bamidbar, the fourth book of the Chumash, which in many ways is really the conclusion of Torah, because the fifth book is the Sermon of Moshe Rabbeinu, when he bids farewell to his people, so the entire last Sefer is Moshe's presentation, his speech to the Jewish people, just the final weeks of his life. But actually the story, the way the Torah narrates the story, ends with the book of Bamidbar and then begins Moshe's speech. There is something extremely perplexing when you read this verse in Parshish Maseh that comes to mind. And that's the following. The Torah does not mention any yard site of anybody. When you read the text of Chumash and Tanakh, you will not know the day, the anniversary of the passing of any individual even the greatest of the great, those individuals responsible for creating civilization, impacting civilization, molding the Jewish people, leading the Jewish people, individuals individuals who have had an incredible impact on our history, on our heritage, on our story. Their yard site is not mentioned. For example, when did Adam Harishan or Chava pass away? When did Adam and Eve die? I don't know. When did Noyach pass away? He saved all of civilization from the flood. I don't know. When did Avraham Avinu, the founder of, of Judaism, the father of the Jewish people, the one who brought monotheism to the world, when did Avraham Avinu or Sarah pass away? I don't know. The Torah tells me how old Avraham was when he passed away. It Earlier it tells me how old Sarah was when she passed away. But I don't know when. There's no date. No month. No day in the month, certainly no day in the week. I don't know. Yitzchak, the second of our patriarchs, his wife Rivka, Rebecca. I don't know. It says Yitzchak passed away. He was 180 years old. Avram was 175. Sarah was 127. Rivka's death is not mentioned explicitly in the Torah. Yaakov, the third of the patriarchs, the father of the 12 tribes, his wives, Rachel, Leah, Bila, Zilpa. They pass away. Yaakov lives till 147. Rachel dies during childbirth, a young lady. It's very interesting. And the same goes on. Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe. The man who is the central figure, if you can call it so, of Torah. The one who's mentioned in every single portion from his birth till the end. From Parsha Shmai's, the day he's born, he's mentioned in every single Parsha till the last portion. Besides one, Tetzave, which we once discussed in another class. I don't know when Moshe passed away. The Torah does not say. The Torah tells me that Moshe passed away. The Torah tells me that Miriam passed away. Miriam, it says, we learned in Parshish Chukas, two people passed away there. Miriam passed away, and Aaron passed away. And the language there is, the Jewish people came to Midbar Sin in the first month, and Miriam passed away there. So with Miriam, I still know a month. Moshe Rabbeinu, it doesn't even say a month. It just says he passed away and they mourned for him 30 days. Now, let me make it clear. The Talmud and the Medrash derives from different verses through different analytical methods the dates of different individuals passing away. For example, Moshe Rabbeinu, the Gemara tells us in Tractate Megillah, I think it's page 13, Moshe was born on the 7th of Adar and he passed away on the 7th of Adar. The same is true with Miriam. 
We have a tradition, we deduce from the verses that Miriam passed away on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. We have traditions for other great personalities in the Chumash and the Tanakh. But nowhere is it explicit in the text. Certainly not when it comes to the 12 tribes, Reuven, Shim, and Levi, Yehuda. It says that Yosef passed away. It says that Yosef's brothers passed away. I don't know a date. There are traditions in Midrashim about different dates, but nowhere in the text. There is an exception, okay, two interesting exceptions, and that is the children of Haman. The ten sons of Haman, we know when they were hung. But not because the book of Esther is out to tell me, you know, when we should commemorate the yard site of the anniversary of the ten sons of Haman being hung. It's just because it's in the context of the wars that the Jewish people fought against the enemies who tried to destroy them. So we happen to know the day. One more yard site that we know, and I guess I should say a lot, Big Lahavdal, Nadav and Aviyu. Also, Nadav and Aviyu were the two sons of Aaron who died the day that the Mishkan was inaugurated. But the Torah doesn't tell me their yard site. The Torah says, It was on the eighth day, and there's a whole series of events, and one of the events is that Nadav and Aviyu passed away. So indirectly I find out that it was on the eighth day, which according to our tradition is the first day of the month of Nisan, when Hashem said to put up the Mishkan, the tabernacle sanctuary. Even there it's not very explicit. There's one exception. Do you know that? There's only one exception in the whole Torah for an individual who passed away and the Torah explicitly states the yard site. Now when you see such a thing, your eyebrows must be raised and you have to ask the question, Makara, what happened? What is the yichis? What is the significance of this individual and this, individual, this individual's passing that the Torah here makes an absolutely unique exception to explicitly give me the day of his yard site, the day of his passing. And who is this person? Aaron HaKoyen. Moshe's older brother, Aaron, who was a prophet, who was the high priest, the Koyen Gadol, the high priest of the Jewish people, his yard site we know from the text. And it's fascinating. It does not say where it should say. Where should it say? It should say in the story that describes his actual passing. If you want me to know when Aaron passed away, when you tell me that he passed away, you should give us the date. Now, where is the, the story of Aaron's passing stated in Chumash? It's earlier in the book of Numbers and Parshas Chukas. As I mentioned before, Miriam passes away in that Parsha, and then Aaron passes away in that Parsha. That's Numbers chapter 20, the end of chapter 20. It says there that everybody saw that Aaron passed away. Aaron went up to the mountain called Hoyrahar, double mountain. Interesting, you could still see that mountain if you visit Petra in Jordan, on the Transjordan, the eastern side of the Jordan, the eastern side of the land of Israel. It's like a double mountain. Aaron passes away there, and everybody saw that Aaron passed away, and they wept. All the, the whole house of Israel wept for Aaron for 30 days. It does not say a date. Suddenly, in Parshas Masay, when we're not even talking about Aaron's passing, the Torah in Parshas Masay enumerates the 42 encampments of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, during their journey from Egypt all the way to the land of Canaan. The Torah begins, Parshish Masih. These are the journeys of the children of Israel. When they left Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down every single destination, every place they encamped. And then they left that encampment and traveled to another location where they lodged, either for a very long time or for a very short time, and they moved on. And in the midst of these journeys, this is Bamid Baperik Lamed Gimel Pasek. Lamed Ches, Numbers 33, chapter 33, verse 38. It describes there how they left a place called Kodesh. They arrived at the edge of a land, a territory known as the land of Edom, 
right near a mountain called Hoyr Ha'har. Aaron Hakayan goes up to the mountain based on the instructions of Hashem, and he dies there. Vayamas Shama. The Torah says when. In the 40th year since the exodus of Egypt, on the fifth month of the year, on the first day of the month, which of course, in the Chumash, you do not have the names of the months. The months are, are titled by numbers. The first month, the second month, the third month, the first month in Chumash is always the month of Nisan. Eir is month two, Sivan is month three. Those who are more familiar with the names of April, May, and June, so Nisan corresponds usually to April and May and June. The fourth month is Tammuz. That's the month we are now we are now present in. Soon Tammuz is going to end in a few days, and then comes the fifth month, which is the month of Av Menachem Av. Aaron passed away on Rosh Chodesh of the first day of Av, the only yard site in the entire Torah, in the entire Tanakh, and not in the place where he passed away. Portions later, completely out of sequence. We're not discussing here Aaron's death, we're discussing here the journeys from Egypt till they reached the land of Canaan. It's here, when the Torah mentions that Aaron passed away, the Torah says, you know what? Let me give you the month, let me give you the day when Aaron passed away. And then the Torah adds his age. And Aaron was 123 years old when he passed away on this mountain. What is the mystery behind this? What is the significance? One of the great biblical commentators to raise this question is known as the Nitziv. The Nitziv is an acronym for Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. He was the great rabbi and Rosh Hashiva of Valozhin. Valozhin is a city in Lithuania, a town in Lithuania. Valozhin had the famous great yeshiva called the Valozhin Yeshiva that was founded by a man named Reb Chaim Valozhiner, who was one of the great students of the Vilna Gaon. He founded it in the early 1800s. The Nitziv was a descendant of Reb Chaim Valozhiner, and he became the rabbi of the city of Alajan and the famous head of the yeshiva of the Valajan yeshiva. He's also very well known for many great works that he authored on Jewish law, scholarship, and one of them is his great commentary on Chumash known as Hamek Dover and Harchev Dover. Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin passed away in the 1890s. So he's a 19th century great luminary of Eastern European Jewry, and he passes away in the eighteen, the early 1890s, I believe. He addresses this question, and let me see what he says. He says, The Torah did not tell me, not by the death of Moshe, not by the death of Miriam, the month or the day. By Miriam it says it was the first month, but not the day. By Moshe it doesn't even say the month. The Nitziv gives us a reason, and we can call it, I guess, somewhat of a melancholy reason. Nitziv says that the Torah is intimating that this month may spell disaster for the Jewish people. Because Aaron 
is the first high priest who inaugurates the first Beis the first Mishkan, the sanctuary where God's presence dwells amidst the Jewish people. Aaron Hakoyen, who represents the service in the sanctuary, passes away on the first day of this month. Says the Nitziv, this is a sign for generations that in this month, the Beis Hamikdash will be destroyed, which is like the second death of Aaron, because Aaron represents the holy sanctuary where he served and he represented the Jewish people in the divine service. He was taken away on this month, and the Beis Hamikdash that he embodied and where he served as the first high priest was also taken away on this month. Then it says the Torah here in a very subtle, mystical way intimates what what might happen or what will happen in this month when the first holy temple and the second holy temple were both destroyed on the ninth day of the month of Av. Yet, as some point out, the answer seems enigmatic. Because if that's the case, we have a principle, the attribute of goodness is greater than the attribute of negativity. Famous expression of our sages in the Talmud, and Rashi quotes it, we all know the Talmud and Tractate Megillah speaks about the month of Adar and Moshe's birth and passing on the day of Adar. That Haman, Hama, cast his lot to figure out what would be the best day to annihilate, God forbid, the Jewish people. And it fell out on the month of Adar and he said, Hooray! Hooray! It's the month that Moshe Rabbeinu, the leader of the Jewish people, passed away. This is a good month to annihilate the Jewish people. If Moshe was taken, if Moshe, the greatest man who ever lived, God's prophet, was taken away on this month, this is the month when I will be able to achieve my scheme to annihilate God's people. The Gemara says in Tractate Megillah, dedicated to Purim, Haman was unaware that Moshe Rabbeinu was also born on the very same day in the very same month. (laughs) And therefore, the plot could not hold up. It could not be maintained. If that's the case, then the month of others should have also been mentioned as the month when Moshe Rabbeinu was born, just like you're mentioning the day that Aaron passed away to teach me and intimate that this is going to be the month of destruction. It was Moshe's birth and passing in the month of Adar that ultimately heralded the events in subsequent generations of Purim, the amazing events of Purim. The Jewish people stood at the brink of annihilation and then their destiny was transformed from grief to jubilation, from darkness to light. Why is that not intimated also in the Chumash? Moshe's death and birth on the month of, in the month of Adar, the seventh day of Adar, which would intimate what would happen in the future of Jewish history. I want to share with you a very interesting insight, which comes from the Sfas Emes. The Sfas Emes was the second Gera Rebbe. One of the great Hasidic dynasties is known as the dynasty of Gur or Ger. Its founder was the Chidush Harim. Reb Meir, Reb Yitzchak Meir Alter, who was a student of the Kotzke Rebbe, and then after the Kotzke Rebbe's passing, he became a great master and teacher and mentor in the city of Gur, which is not far from Warsaw in Poland. He's known as the Chidushe Harim. Sadly, he lost most of his children during his lifetime. He raised a grandson, Reb Yehuda Aryeh Leib, who after the Chidushe Harim's passing in the 1800s, 1866, I believe, was succeeded by his grandson, known as the Svasemes. And he became the second Rebbe of Ger. He passed away in Shvat, Tafresh Samachai, 1905. And he's very well known in the world because of his great works on Talmud, known as Svasemes, and his commentary on Chumash and holidays, also known as Svasemes. 
It's quoted in a book called Lakuta Yehuda. This is what he says. My grandfather, the Svas Emma, said, it says in Sefer Chassidim, it's a very famous work by Rabbi Yudah Chassid called Sefer Chassidim. There was a story about a person. He honored very much those who passed away. He remembered them, he mourned them, he spoke of them, and he paid tribute to them. And when anybody in the community was sitting shiva and was mourning the death of a loved one, he himself would come back home from the funeral without shoes to pay tribute, to show sympathy, to show that he empathizes and identifies with the people sitting shiva. So he himself would take off his shoes, and even though he wasn't obligated, he himself wasn't sitting shiva, but to show his friendship and empathy. So for his mitzvah was nicham avelim. Nicham avelim means to comfort those who are mourning. And this was his special mitzvah. So if anybody was mourning, he himself felt that he wants to participate, show the person that he's not alone in his grief. There is a, he has a friend, and he would take off his shoes. Says the Sefer Chassidim in section 434, this man died on Tisha B'av, on the ninth day of Av, when nobody wears shoes. So basically, the day that he passed away and he was buried, everybody was walking around barefoot without shoes. This was like God demonstrating the effect of his actions. He was there for everybody else, showing empathy, showing comfort, showing respect, showing camaraderie. And he himself took off his shoes. When he passed away, everybody took off their shoes. And not because they necessarily wanted to, because on Tisha B'Av, it's the national day of mourning of the Jewish people. We don't wear shoes on Tisha B'Av. It's one of the things we do. So he passes away on Tisha B'Av, nobody wears shoes. It's interesting. I remember there was a Jew in Montreal. Uh, and he was obsessed. I'm using the word obsessed. I don't have another word, but really I shouldn't be used. He was obsessed with learning Erechayim. The commentary of Erechayim HaKadosh and Chumash Rabbeinu Chamrata. He was absolutely infatuated with Erechayim. And he would make a weekly class in Erechayim and he would drive people crazy. They should come to the Shir. This was his thing. Sun and rain, sunshine and rain, snow, winter, summer, hot, cold. And in Montreal it gets very, very cold. Whatever the circumstances, he made sure there was a class in Erechayim. He had to learn Erechayim and he did this for years and he schlepped and he mobilized people and he promoted and he advertised. And he passed away on the day of the Yartzet of the Erechayim, which is Tesvav Tamas, the 15th day of Tamas. Nusen Felik. It's an interesting thing. My grandmother, my mother's mother, her name was Taibel Lipsker. Luba Alta Taiba, three names. Luba Alta Taiba, which means an old lovebird. <laughs> Luba is love. Alta, old. Taiba is a Taiba bird. Old lovebird. <laughs> Or love old bird. Luba Alta Taiba or Taibel. She passed away a number of years ago at the age of 94. Chafhei Shvat, the 25th day of Shvat. She, this is a personal and fascinating, fascinating story about my grandmother. This is my mother, Tzalanga Yod, and her mother. She was a very special woman. You know, the matriarchs of that generation who went through unfathomable turmoil and agony. And she was a refugee. She lived in Georgia, in southern Russia. Hitler could not get there. 
because of the Kafkas mountains, the Caucasus mountains, they could not get there. The Germans could not get there. So the Jews were safe. But they were living in Stalinist Russia under the Soviet communist regime. It was not an easy life. And then after the Holocaust, like many Russian Jews, they escaped through false passports because Stalin allowed the refugees, citizens of other countries, to leave Russia. So they forged their passports. And my grandfather, my grandmother, and their children, who were still who were, were young, the oldest, my mother, who was a young girl, they left Russia. And, you know, they went to the DP camps, displaced person camps. You know, my mother told me they were given a, an apartment with one room. And you're talking about a mother and a father with quite a few children. They had five or six children at the time with one room. And, you know, you went from one place to another place, one place to another place. Thank God they were alive. That was, itself was a great miracle. They were thankful for being alive. Until finally, in 1947, they arrived in the United States of America. My grandmother once lamented to the Lubavitcher Rebbe that she suffers from depression. She's, she's not in a good mood. She's anxious. She has anxiety. And uh, she has some form of melancholy, depression. Today, you know, they sent you off to a therapist. But this is the days when, you know, the Jewish world was somewhat different. These were survivors generation who didn't have anxiety. <laughs> I'm laughing. Who didn't have anxiety? Yeah. Who didn't have trauma? I mean, the trauma was endless. The question you had to ask yourself was, do we move on or do we wallow in the trauma? But very few people, there were those who didn't have trauma, but very few. So, but she once told this to the Rebbe. And what do you think the Rebbe told her? He gave her a fascinating instruction. My grandmother was a very good dancer. She was an exceptional dancer. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe suggested to my late grandmother that she should go to as many weddings as she can. Not just relatives or friends. Weddings of Jews. And dance. Dance at the wedding. And bring joy to the kala, to the relatives, to the family, to the community. And this my grandmother did for 40 years, for approximately 40 years. Whenever she could, she went to a wedding, not weddings of friends or relatives. For sure, she went to friends of weddings of friends and relatives. She herself married off nine children. But she went to any possible wedding she can, invited or uninvited. She would go, and she would dance, and dance she could. She had getanced and getanced and getanced. She was a really good dancer, a skilled dancer. And everybody knew Taiba Lipska is here, Zayn Lebedek. Very few people knew the reason she's doing it. She's doing it because she's trying to find her own reservoir of joy. But in that process of bringing joy to so many people, she herself found the fortitude, the courage, the resilience, the resolve that she needed to be able to live a noble life, a dignified life, a moral life, a life of uh, deep commitment, dedication, and love. And she would dance. I remember as a child, you know, I would sometimes, uh, if I was at the wedding, you know, my grandmother, so to speak, stole the show. And she wasn't that star. She didn't have to steal the show. But she would start dancing with other, now, with other women or herself for a very long time. And then she would go home. But she would dance to the point of exhaustion until she couldn't dance anymore. First of all, I have to say, it was very good exercise. It was probably very good for her health too. The Rebbe killed two birds with one stone. Besides that, there was the benefit of what it did for her and what it did for everybody else. Particularly, her dancing came to very special use at certain weddings. She lived in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. Many weddings were people who were bali tshuva. Young women and men 
who grew up in secular Jewish homes and then came back to Yiddishkeit and then chose to get married. And they got married very often in Crown Heights section of Brooklyn or nearby. Dozens and hundreds over the years. Now, they did not have large extended families. Sometimes the families were broken. Sometimes the families wouldn't even come. But even if the families would come, remember their parents and grandparents. Sometimes they were not Jewish. Sometimes they were very alienated from the Jewish people. They didn't even know the traditions and the customs of a Jewish wedding. And it's not like these girls and boys grew up, you know, in large classes and communities and 100 relatives and 300 relatives like some of you. And everybody was at the wedding. They didn't have those families. You know, sometimes you had a little nuclear family, one or two or three people. And maybe one uncle or one aunt. So these weddings could have been a little on the dull side. And my grandmother, when she heard that a Balchuva is getting married, this was her wedding. She would go and she would dance away. And it was really, really beautiful. Why am I telling you this story? My uncle, my mother's brother, married off his youngest child. This is... 12 years ago. 12 years ago, he married off his youngest child. This is my mother's younger brother. And uh, I came to the wedding. I had a lecture, I had a shear that night. So I was somewhere else. I came late. I came very late to the wedding. I was coming towards the end of the dancing. I would be at the end of the dancing. And, um, and the benching, the Sheva Brachs, you know, the last dance of the wedding when it's empty. I come to the wedding. It's close to midnight. And uh, I see something strange. My mother is not there. My uncles are not there. My aunts are not there. The only one who's there is the father of the groom and his wife. And the whole family is gone. I'm wondering. I call my mother like, what happened? Everybody, everybody, uh, they're all at the wedding. Like, what happened? Everybody ran away from this wedding. Nobody's there. Nobody's there. Okay. It was very strange to me. But I went in. I, 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 I gave mazel tov, you know, did some dancing. And uh, and I stayed there till the end of the wedding. I leave the wedding, and I hear what happened. My grandmother, who was ninety four years old, she was home, and uh, the last few years she was uh, basically home. And that night, in the middle of the wedding, she wasn't feeling well. She had a hard time breathing. So the assistant, the person who was there, you know, helping her medically, called uh, a cousin of mine who was at Sala came over, said she has to go to the hospital. So they took her to Methodist Hospital in Brooklyn. My mother is the oldest daughter, and she was at the wedding. So my cousin from Atsala right away called my mother and his mother-in-law, my mother's sister, and said that your mother was taken to the hospital, and it's a difficult situation. So my mother told her siblings. And at some point in the middle of the wedding, they all checked out, and they went to Methodist Hospital. They didn't want to tell the brother who was a son of my who is a son of my grandmother because it was his child's wedding. They didn't want to schlep him to the hospital. It would have been inappropriate. But they all, you know, sneaked out, hoping it wouldn't make such a ruckus. And they all rushed to Methodist Hospital. My grandmother was taken to the ICU unit, and all of her children, most of her children, went into the room with their spouses, who also came from the wedding. And then some grandchildren who heard about it, and they also rushed to the hospital. So there were around 40 people in the ICU around her bed. The doctors and nurses were quite perplexed of this scene, but they allowed it. They allowed it. She was having a difficult time breathing. But here's the most fascinating thing. They all came from the wedding. So everybody was wearing 
wedding gowns, beautiful, fancy wedding gowns, beginning with my mother, all the way, all the children, you know, the grandchildren, the granddaughters, the sisters-in-law, daughters-in-law of my grandmother, everybody with wedding gowns, because they were coming from the wedding of my first cousin, all wedding gowns, and my uncles and cousins started to sing songs. And they started to sing beautiful, beautiful Jewish tunes, uh, uh, heartwarming and heart-stirring melodies, including lebedica, happy songs, wedding songs, which my grandmother cherished. Now, the nurses were rubbing their eyes that like 40 people in wedding gowns or, or kapotas, bekisha suits, with, you know, dressed up. That's how you come to an ICU? It was like, what, you put on a wedding gown because your mother and I see they didn't realize that everybody was coming from a wedding. And as they were singing these beautiful songs, my grandmother returned her soul to its maker in the middle of the night, the 25th day of Shabbat, 12 years ago. And when my mother shared with me, I wasn't there because I came late to the wedding and I found out later that she just passed away. So I already went only afterwards. But as the next day we all went to the funeral and hundreds of descendants escorted my grandmother and they interred her into the Montefiore Cemetery in Queens, uh, just a few feet from the burial place of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I thought to myself, wow, she spent 40 years bringing joy to brides and grooms at weddings. She would dress up in a beautiful wedding dress or gown and she would go dance away. And when she returned her soul to its maker, as she left the world, she was surrounded by children coming from a wedding, dressed in wedding gowns, quite literally, quite literally, singing wedding songs, celebrating her life. And that's how her neshama went back to be embraced by its father in heaven and remain in his bosom. Because the way we live and the way we interact in our lives, it doesn't only impact the people that see it, of course. It also creates very deep influence. It has a tremendous influence on the energy of the world and our own energy. And sometimes it's expressed itself in, it's expressed itself in fascinating ways. So the Sefer Chassidim says, this Jew, his thing was empathy. He took off his shoes for every person who passed away to be there with their relatives. And that's how he would come home. And when he passed away, the whole community was the same way. It was Tisha B'Av. Says this Vasemes. Aaron, Aaron's legacy was he loved the Jewish people. He gave kindness to the Jewish people. So he, we all know, it says in Pirkei Yavis about Aaron, Oyev Shalom, Roydev Shalom, Oyev Sabriyas, Makarim, Latera. Love peace, pursue peace, love people, bring them close to Torah. In fact, the Talmud says, our sages say, that by Moshe it says, all the children, all the sons of Israel wept for him. By Aaron, when he died, it says, the whole house of Israel wept. So our sages say, everybody, men, women, and children, because Aaron dedicated his life to bring peace between couples, peace between former enemies. Aaron's mission statement was, love peace, pursue peace, love people. And bring people together, unite people. This was Aaron's mission in life. That's what he did. So when he passed away, it wasn't just his students who mourned. Every single Jew, the scholarly and the simple, everybody mourned because Aaron's entire life was dedicated to bring people together. Says the Svasemes, when Aaron Akayan passes away, all the Jewish people mourn. And therefore his yard site is Rosh Chodesh Av on the first day of Av when begins the nine days. 
which are the days of national mourning. All the Jewish people mourn the nine days because of the structure of the base Hamikdash. It's not like other days when you have one person mourning. In other words, Aaron Akayim's death is mourned every single year by all of the Jewish people. Because who was Aaron? Aaron was a person who brought love to all of the Jewish people, and therefore he is remembered and he's mourned for every single year. On Rish Chodesh of when all the Jewish people go into mourning, and the Torah wants you to know that. This is the deeper layer of what the Nitziv is saying, to appreciate the fact that all the Jews, so to speak, pay back. They pay tribute to Aaron, who was really there for them. So just like this Jew who would take off his shoes when somebody was mourning, and when he passes away, everybody had their shoes off. Aaron Akayin, whose entire life was about Avas Yisrael, love of the Jewish people, when he passes away, it's not just one person participates. For generations, for generations, all of the Jewish people are part of the commemoration of Aaron's passing and Aaron's yard site because the way he lived. I have a friend in Israel. He's a teacher, he's a lecturer, he's a writer. His name is Rabbi Shneir Ashkenazi. So he sent out a story this week. This week, I want to tell you the story. He said it's a story that he knows personally. And he vouches for it. He said it was 35 years ago. One day before Sukkot. His father was a Jew named Reb Motel Ashkenazi. He was the Rav of the town Kfar Chabad in, uh, in Israel. He says 35 years ago, one day before Sukkot. A woman walks into our home. The Ashkenazi household in Kfar Chabad. She lives in Kfar Chabad. And she comes in with a friend of hers whom we did not know. The woman we knew, but her friend we did not know. Both of them start crying. And they tell my father, the rabbi of Krachabat, that this woman, the friend who came in, made an appointment tomorrow. This was two days before Sukkot. She made an appointment tomorrow, right before Sukkot, for an abortion. Why? She lived a very complicated life. She did some, she made some mistakes. She became pregnant. She said if her father finds out that she's pregnant... He will murder her. He will literally murder her. She has no choice. It's her life or the fetus's life. She has to do an abortion. So she made an appointment the day before Sukkot. My father, Reb Matul Chabad, pleaded with her to push off the abortion till after Sukkot. And after Simchas he wants to be in contact with her. He said, listen, during the days of Sukkot, your father won't find out that you're pregnant. So we still have a little time let me see what I can do. Let's work on it. Let's just push off the abortion for now. You know, he was trying to buy time. Let's be in touch after some chastorin. Rabbi Ashkenazi and his wife now decided to do what Jews do. To find a Jewish family in Europe, perhaps a family of Chabad Shluchim in Europe, where this young lady could go live and give birth in Europe. And her family would not find out about the pregnancy because she wouldn't be in Israel, she would be in Europe, and we'll figure out what to do with the baby, obviously make sure that the baby has a bright future. They would find a family that would later adopt the baby, a loving, good family would adopt the baby, and take care of the child to avoid abortion. My mother, Rebetzin Ashkenazi, may she be well, begins calling various shluchos, Chabad shluchos, in Europe. But nobody was up to the job. They simply couldn't do it to be able to adopt this girl until she would give birth. They simply couldn't do it because, you know, it would be almost, uh, it would be uh, quite a while. On Chalamayit, Chalamayit Sukkot, he says, my father, the rabbi of Kwar Chabad, goes to Davin one morning and he meets somebody in Shul. 
This is a Jew who's French. He's a friend Jew. He lives in Lyon. His name is Reb Shmuel Gurevich. And he's the Chabad Shliach, the Chabad ambassador to Leon for many decades. And he happened, Chalamoy Yitzchukas, to come to Israel. And he went to Shul to Daven in the morning. My father sees him. He says, oh, I'm looking for somebody from France. What's the going on? He tells Rabbi Gurevich the whole story with this girl. And Gurevich says, no problem. I'll deal with it. We'll work in partnership. We'll get this done. My parents... Rabbi Rebetzin Ashkenazi, who did not have a lot of money, he was the rabbi of a city, his salary was not very prosperous, went and collected money to buy a ticket. They gave her an extra $50 of their own money, which they didn't have, but they gave her an extra $50 so she should have, you know, some pocket money to buy a bottle of Pepsi, a bottle of water. And she goes on the airplane right after Simchaster. The pregnancy was not easy. It was complicated. It was difficult. The family that became the host to this girl, went through a lot of difficulty. This was not a simple story. It's a complex story. This was a complex girl, a very difficult and painful story. So the whole thing was just, as we call it in English, a big mess. But full-term baby, nine months pregnancy, time of delivery came, and she gave birth, Baruch Hashem, to a healthy, young baby girl. Another city, another family in Leon, who struggled with infertility and was searching to adopt a baby, adopted this baby girl, this infant, and they were very generous and kind. So they used to send to Israel, they used to send to Israel a ticket for the biological mother to come and visit her child. Fascinating. The mother recovered in Leon, and then she went back to Israel. Nobody knew she was pregnant. But they, the family who adopted the baby, would send her tickets to be able to come and visit her biological child. The girl grew up, and Rabbi Schneir Ashkenazi says, a wonderful, wonderful girl, extraordinary, gorgeous on the inside and on the outside, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And she studied in the Chabad school system in France, in the girls' school system. As a teenager, she came to visit the Holy Land, and she came to Kfar Chabad to visit the home of the Ashkenazis. She came into the door, and she met my mother, Rebetzin Ashkenazi, who was the one who arranged the whole the whole operation, you know, the Mossad operation, that she should be able, her mother should be able to go to Leon and find a house and give birth, and that the girl should be adopted. She saw my mother, she knew the story. She said she embraced my mother. It was a very emotional moment. And said, till the last breath, I will never forget the debt I owe you, for giving me literally the gift of life, because I was destined, I might have been destined to be aborted, you know, when I was still in the womb. Rabbi Ashkenazi says, 35 years passed. Remember, this happened 35 years ago. 35 years passed. The days of Corona have arrived. Corona! Or as they say in Israel, Corona! He says, one of my brothers lives in Montreal. His name is Reb Chaim Eliezer Ashkenazi. So he happens to be a friend of mine. And he can't go to shul, just like everybody else. The shuls are closed down. And he can't go to shul. Slowly, as the pandemic, you know, as the corona c- continues, some little shuls open up, some in Yanim outside, some in Yanim inside. Near my brother's house, there's a little Sephardic shul. He usually would always go to a big shul where he davened, but right near his house, there was a little Sephardic shul, a little Sephardic minion. And because of the corona, he davens there. He says, one day, a little while ago, somebody's sitting not far from him, and they start schmoozing after davening. 
And the Sephardic man turns and says, what's your last name? He says, my name is Ashkenazi. Ashkenazi, where are you from? He says, I'm from Israel. Where in Israel? Kfar Chabad. Your father was the rabbi of Kfar Chabad. He passed away already. Yeah, we're Matul Ashkenazi. It turns out that this fellow married the girl who was born in Leon. He was the husband who married the girl who was supposed to be aborted by her mother a day before Sukkot. Thousands of kilometers, thousands and thousands of miles from France. So his brother Ashkenazi meets the husband of this girl before Pesach. His wife, the little girl, not little anymore, calls my brother and says, I had a baby. The woman, the girl who was saved, who wasn't aborted, whose husband met Rabbi Ashkenazi in Montreal, she calls Rabbi Ashkenazi ben Prachabad, his son, says, I had a baby, my first baby, a son. We're going to have a bris in a few days. This is this year, a few weeks ago. I would love to honor your father to be the sandik, but your father passed away. I want to honor you just to pay tribute to your father and your mother. So, to be a sandik of a baby, you have to be tested. So he went to test the test of COVID-19. The test came out negative. So he was allowed to go to the bris, of course, with a mask. And he was the sandik and he held the baby. The bris had to be very small, quarantine. It happened in the home of the girl, of the mother, the mother who was born in Leon and uh, was adopted. It was you know, Who was in the house? Three men. The father of the child, the moil, and Reb Chaim Elazar Ashkenazi, the sandik who held the baby, honoring his parents. So now think about how the hashgacha works. Here's a baby, has a bris. Only three people are at the bris. The father of the baby, it's his house. The moil, somebody got to do the circumcision. So usually in the bris that happened now, in the places where they're careful, and certainly Pesach time, that was it. The father of the son and the moil. Because you don't must have a minion by a bris. It's nice to have, but if you can't, you can't. A lot of bris happened with two people, two men. Besides the mother, of course. You had the moil, and you had the father. The father held the baby, and the moil did the bris. And all was good. But here there was one more person who, the son of Rabbi Ashkenazi, who was really the spiritual father of this baby, because he was the spiritual father of the mother, because he saved, he literally saved her life from being aborted, and now she has a baby, and his son ends up at the Bris in Montreal. In no way could have anybody figured this out. They would end up in Montreal, Corona, he would sit in the shul, he would meet her husband, a few weeks later she'd have a baby after Pesach, and he would be the son. What does this teach you, my dear? What does this teach us all? It teaches us there's nothing that doesn't have an impact. Everything we do, we say, it creates an energy that lives forever. We may see it, if we're lucky, and sometimes we don't see it. My grandmother danced for 40 years, bringing joy to so many people's lives. That energy is not forgotten. And when she returns her soul to its maker, it's like a wedding. She's surrounded by 40 wedding gowns, singing and celebrating her life. The Gemara says in Erevin, Hai Alma Kebehi Luladamya. Our world is like a wedding. The whole world is like a wedding. Seize the moment, the Gemara says. Eat and drink. Basically, it's a metaphor of saying it's a wedding. It's a time to celebrate and seize every opportunity to be joyous, to dance, to extract the gems, the resources, the opportunities you have in every single moment of life. And the energy lasts forever. Here is a Jew living in Kvachabad. Saves a girl. Saves a girl from performing an abortion on her own baby. And not easy. These are the unsung heroes of the Jewish people. Finds a Chabad Shliach in Leon who's ready to host this girl 
and allow her to give birth, and another family adopts the baby, but still invites the biological mother so there could still be that connection. And one day, this girl builds her own beautiful home, finds a husband, settles in Montreal, a lovely Sephardic Canadian family, has a baby. And somehow God, Hashgach, makes sure that the family, who are the spiritual parents and progenitors of this great miracle and this great act of love and kindness and life-affirming act, somehow are there as well. So the Sfasemah says, Aaron Akayin, he touched every Jew. He was dedicated to every Jew. He does, the Torah doesn't just say he passed away. He gives us the day and tells you for generations. Everyone becomes part of that commemoration because in the nine days, we all have a certain element, there's a certain element of Avelis, a certain element of mourning. But I want to add one more detail. And this is something I happened to hear myself. I was privileged to hear from the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, which takes it one step further. We did the Nitziv, we did the Svasemis, takes it one step further. The Rebbe says, it's not just that the Torah is telling us all the Jews will be part of the yard site mourning commemoration of Aaron. It's much deeper than that. Aaron doesn't pass away on Tisha B'av. He passes away on Rishchidosh of the first of the nine days. Rather, the Torah is intimating to us something very powerful and very special. And that also explains very beautifully where it's located in the Parsha. Parsha's Masse is always read right before the nine days. Parsha's Dvarim is the Shabbos before Tisha B'av. Parsha's Masse is right before that. Before we go into the era of the nine days, we always read Parsha's Masse. It's here, not in Chukas, where the Torah tells us that Aaron passed away and Rish Chodesh of. You know why? To teach us something special. HaKadosh Baruch Hu Makdim Whenever there is a plague in the world, God already orchestrated that the remedy should be able to be accessible. It may still be concealed. But if there is a challenge and a crisis, there is already a secret remedy for it. Because why? Because the truth is the purpose of the challenge is to get to a deeper place of awareness and love. So the challenge doesn't bring the remedy. The remedy is what brings the challenge. The remedy precedes the challenge because the whole purpose of the challenge is to reach a deeper place of healing. I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's not that there's a problem. So God says, let me find a remedy. The reason there's a problem is because there's a remedy for the problem. And through the problem, we're going to reach that deeper level of awareness, of, of love, of oneness, of intimacy. This doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes it's painful. But there's no challenge if there's no solution for the challenge beforehand. This is what our sages teach. Because the whole reason for the challenge is to reach a deeper place of truth and connection. And therefore, the challenge always comes after there is already the healing opportunity. Although the healing may be concealed. But if there is a crisis that is born, before that something else was born. The nine days are challenging days for the Jewish people. Before we go into the nine days, we read a parasha Masse. And there the Torah unexpectedly, put something in that doesn't seem to belong there. Aaron passed away on the first day of the month of Av. Because the yard site of a tzaddik is a day when that tzaddik's life and influence is manifested in the world and there is an extra opportunity to glean his energy, his love, his light, his perspective, his legacy, his Torah, his mitzvahs, his good deeds, and make them part of our life. On the day of the yard site of a person, any person, and certainly a tzaddik, their light, their teachings, their Torah, is manifested in this world. Poyel Yeshua is Bekerava Aretz, is an expression in Tanya, from Tehillah. And therefore, Aaron's Yartzad on Rishchidosh of, 
makes his light and his influence be manifest. What was Aaron's life about? Be one of the students of Aaron. Love peace, pursue peace, love people, and bring them close to Torah. What was the biggest and what remains one of the greatest challenges of the Jewish people that led to almost every story of destruction in our history? Divisiveness, strife, politics, animosity, fragmentation. What is our greatest source of healing? Unity, trust, love, dedication to each other. We must not agree with each other, but we have to be able to love each other. We must not see always eye to eye, but we have to be able to support each other, be here for each other, cherish each other, respect each other. Even when we have disagreements, even when we have ideological disagreements, we must never allow them to become personal. We must never carry personal vendettas. We have to cleanse our hearts from the trauma created by grudges and negative energy and toxicity. Sometimes it's difficult. If I feel somebody has done something wrong to me, how do I get that hatred out of my heart? But this is the Avoidus Hashem. Maybe I have to speak to the person. Maybe I have to speak to somebody else. Maybe I have to share with the person what I'm feeling. Give the person an opportunity to understand my perspective, understand their perspective. Maybe the person will then be able to apologize. But I have to be able to actively work on not walking around with grudges, resentment, frustration, hatred, envy, animosity. Now we have these emotions, but we have to quarantine these emotions, meaning we can't allow these emotions to take over our life and dictate our behavior. I may have this feeling, this emotion, okay, put it in its place, understand where it's coming from, but do not allow it to dictate your life. We have to be dictated. We want to be guided by the voice that teaches the voice that you are part of God's infinity in this world, and I am a manifestation of God's infinity in this world, and therefore we are really one. I may have a disagreement with you, but that cannot translate into hate and mistrust and and negativity. What do they say? There's a famous expression, holding grudges, holding grudges. (laughs) You know, when you you harbor a grudge in your heart towards somebody else, you know what it's like? It's basically... You inhale, it's like inhaling poison and hoping that your enemy is going to die from you inhaling poison. Or as somebody else said, it's like putting yourself on fire and hoping that your enemy is going to be affected by the fire. When I harbor a grudge, I become dysfunctional. Now, sometimes it's very difficult. If I had a difficult experience or encounter or circumstance, this is the work of Avaida that we have to work on. This is what Adam represents. So Aaron passes away on Rish Chodesh Right the first day of the nine days, God says you have the energy of Aaron in the world to be able to bring the world to a deeper place of love. This is the Hakdamas Refua Lamaka, the remedy that comes before the challenge, before the crisis of hatred and destruction. We already have here the opportunity of Aaron to create love because remember the whole challenge is here only to bring us to a deeper place of unity, a deeper place of love. The contention is here to bring us to a deeper place of Avas Yisrael and Achdus Yisrael. Now God knows how difficult it is to extricate animosity from our communities. It's very, very difficult. Aaron Akoyan becomes the paradigm of how to do it. And as a result of that, Aaron is the one whose yard site is Rish of, and the Torah emphasizes it in the time when we come into the month of Av, this Shabbos is Parashas Masih, and every year it's that way, every single year. The Torah somehow, God knew 
that Parshas Masi is going to be read right before the nine days, when the Beis Hamikdash, both of them will be destroyed. The primary source of it would be hatred and negativity and strife and animosity, as the Gemara says in Yuma, page nine, sinas chinam, baseless hatred. It tells us, I want you to know that Aaron's yard site is this time. There's a tremendous flow of positive energy of love. And as a result of that, you have an opportunity to be able to seize, to seize the energy of Aaron. And remember that love of the Jewish people towards each other, the unity of the Jewish people with each other reigns supreme. And there's nothing in the world that justifies our hatred, our mistrust towards each other. We may have issues, we may have disagreements, we have to learn how to work them out respectfully, but never stop speaking to somebody. Always communicate with each other. Never throw somebody under the bus. Never allow disagreements and politics to corrode and erode our unity, our essential connection, our essential relationship. I'm going to conclude with a fascinating story in the Medrash. And then we'll take some questions. The Medrash says in Yalkut Shemoyni, uh, section, uh, section 38. What was the first burial in history? Anybody knows? Who was the first person to be buried in history? The answer, of course, is Hevel, right? Cain, Cain killed, murdered Hevel. And Hevel lay there dead. So the Medrash says... Adam and Chava saw their son dead, a corpse. They didn't know what to do. Nobody told them about burial. They didn't know. So what did Hashem do? Fascinating medrash. Shalach lahem oirev shemeisrei ehu. Dribayna sent a raven. And the raven had a colleague, a friend, another raven who died. And Adam watched, Adam and Chava watched how this raven dug a little hole, a little pit, and buried its friend. So Adam tells Chava, I think we should emulate this raven. And they created a grave, and they interred their son Hevel, who was murdered by their other son, Cain. That's the Medrash. Now I want to ask you a question. Why did Adam and Chava not know what to do? What did Hashem tell Adam after he ate from the tree of knowledge? Afar ata vel afar tashuv. You are dust, you are earth, and you're going to go back to the earth. God created Adam, Afram in Adam, and that's where you're going to go back to. What, what, what was the issue? God said, everybody's going to go back to the earth. Hevel passed away. Hevel was killed. He's not alive anymore. Put him in the earth. Now you might say, well, how do you bury somebody? But that doesn't seem to be so complicated. I mean, you create a hole and you put the body in the earth. It's not such a complicated mitzvah. I mean, it takes work. But it's not complicated in terms of intricate laws. It's not like, for example, creating a mikveh, where there's a lot of laws, or creating an eriv. Over here, there's a lot of intricate laws. Another question, why does Hashem send a raven? I mean, a raven from all creatures, all living organisms, He sends an oirev to teach this lesson to Adam and Chava. I'm going to share with you a very powerful, a very powerful answer to this question. The answer I read years ago in a uh, in a, it's a volume called Rishimus Rishimus uh, volume twenty five. These are um, journals of very brief Torah ideas that were written by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in his early years in Europe, 
and they were never published after his passing in 1994. They found them in his drawer in his room, and they published most of them. These are like, you know, journals, like private journals, diaries, and he has there a lot of hundreds of pages of Chidushi Torah, ideas in Torah. And in volume 25, he says something about the story with the raven, two men. Adam and Chava are sitting at the corpse of their child. It says they didn't know what to do. It's not only a question of practically, what do we do with the body? It's a question of, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to move on. It's not only a question of what to do. It's a question of why do anything. I think some of us understand that feeling. A certain event happens in life. And it's not only I don't know what to do. I don't know why to do. Like, where do I go from here? I feel so lost. I feel so demoralized. I feel so sad. I feel so depressed. There's no meaning in anything. Like, why should I wake up tomorrow morning? I've heard this from people. You have heard it from people. People say, I don't have a reason to wake up tomorrow morning. People who survived the war, so many of them ask this question. To what am I waking up to? To what? Why should I welcome the sun? And why is the sun even rising? A Jew survivor once said, he asked the question, why, who gives the sun, the chutzpah of the sun to rise and give us light and make believe that the world is such a bright and beautiful place? How cruel of the sun. This is a very deep emotion that takes over people. I don't know what to do with myself. I don't know why to do anything. Where do I go from here? After the abyss opens up in a person's life, a hole the size of an abyss, opens up such a wound and deep cavity in the human tender heart. One is sometimes completely bewildered and dumbfounded and overwhelmed and simply does not know, where do I go from here? Adam and Chava were created by Hashem. They had two sons, Cain and Hevel. This was their nachas. Cain murders Hevel. Where do you go from here? One kid is dead, and the other kid is a murderer who murdered his own brother. Wow, <laughs> that's a big one. How can you continue living in a world where a brother can murder another brother? Where one of your children can kill another one of your child, ch- children? And why? The Torah is not so clear, but there was some form of jealousy, some form of envy, some form of animosity. Cain could not tolerate Hevel and he felt that if Hevel exists in the world, I can't exist in the world and there's only one solution. I have to murder, I have to execute Hevel in order that Cain should be able to exist. Adam and Chava asked themselves, is this the world that God put us into? Are these the children he wants us to create? Is this going to be the legacy of human civilization? This is not just an intellectual question. This is a question that affected every fiber of their being. Where do we go from here? They knew that people will die natural deaths. Hashem told them after eating of the tree that this initiated the concept of death. But they did not know or imagine that one brother can stab his other brother to death because of some petty jealousy when they are the only two people living in the world. Adam and Chava lost their motivation to go on with their life. And you know what Hashem showed them? He showed them something very, very simple and very special. He said, in life, you have to make a choice. Either you're going to be part of the problem, or you're going to be part of the solution. And the only answer 
to the depth of hatred that we see in our world is when you bring to the world that same level of love. There's only one way to battle such powerful hatred, such powerful toxicity, such powerful negativity, and that is bring in momentous, ferocious, powerful positivity, love, affection. You see hatred in the world, you see negativity in the world, either it becomes an invitation to get depressed, to go into the spear, to uh, wallow in the quagmire of melancholy, depression, negative energy, or it becomes an invitation to an unprecedented unleashing of camaraderie, love, trust, loyalty, dedication. When you see such cynicism in the world, when you see such apathy, when you see such indifference, when you see such carelessness, either I become part of the problem and I start sighing about I'm a sugar or I become part of the solution. And how do I become part of the solution? When I use, I counterbalance that very same negative energy and I unleash the exact opposite with the same momentum and ferociousness as the evil. I unleash nuclear energy of love, healing, hope, light, redemption, truth, integrity, authenticity, wisdom, faith, resilience, courage, fortitude with the same momentous power, the same nuclear electricity. This is where the raven comes in. You know, our sages say, there's an expression in Shirashinim, Shechiris Ka'irev. We say every morning in davening, you remember? We mentioned the raven, you remember where? In the Halalukos of Sukkot Zimra from the end of Tehillim. What do we say there? God covers the heaven with clouds. It prepares rain for the earth. Hashem provides bread for the animal, for the mammals, to the children, the offspring of the raven who call out. What offspring? Why are you mentioning a raven? You mention all the mammals and animals in the word behemoth. Suddenly you single out one bird, one raven. Why don't you mention other birds? So our sages say something very interesting. Usually in the animal world, there's natural instincts of affection and love between mommy and tati and the offspring. This is the instinctive DNA of an animal. It will fight for its offspring. It will sometimes die for them. It will do anything to feed them. But the raven is considered a cruel animal. The Talmud says that the Oyrev is achzari. There's a genetic characteristic of cruelty, of selfishness, to the point that he doesn't always care. She doesn't always care about feeding the offspring. The babies cry out to Hashem. And Hashem makes sure that the species of the ravens can also perpetuate and continue to live and survive and propagate despite the difficult circumstances. Because every single animal, every bird, every fish, every reptile. Hashem created in the mechanism of this animal uh, ability to be able to propagate and to create new generations despite challenges in other areas for the time that Hashem wants this species to exist. And this we see by the raven. It often allows its offspring to find its own means of food and it will not take responsibility for them. Nonetheless, in this case God shows Adam and Chava, look at the raven. The raven transcended its own genetic makeup and it went to bury 
and show respect to a friend, another raven who died. This we call chesed shel emes. Sometimes I can be cruel, but I do you a favor because it's reciprocal. I need a favor from you tomorrow, right? The raven couldn't do it for that reason. Why? Because this other raven is dead. This other raven is not going to be able to help the other raven tomorrow. We all understand. Quid per quo. I do you a favor. Tomorrow you do me a favor. In other words, it's a selfish favor. But this raven is helping a dead raven. This raven will never be able to reciprocate its favor. What is this called? Chesed shall emes. Authentic kindness. True kindness. Avas chinam. Baseless love. Meaning it's not motivated by a rational, calculated reason that I'm going to give you love and I'm going to get love back. No. This is absolute, infinite, uninhibited love. In other words, I'm not expecting any return. That's what Adam and Chava saw in the raven. This, in a fascinating way, is what gave Adam and Chava not only the motivation, but the mentorship, the perspective. How do you move on in such a world? When the Jewish world was destroyed 75 years ago, it was a question that faced so many of our parents and so many of our grandparents. How do you wake up tomorrow morning after seeing what they saw? How do you wake up the next day? How? Somebody I work with told me that her she lost her grandmother a few weeks ago. Her name was Mrs. Unger. She was 98 years old. She lived in Williamsburg. She was in Auschwitz taken with her parents, her siblings. Her parents were gassed. Her brothers were gassed. Her siblings were gassed. She arrived with a, She survived with a sister from Auschwitz. She was a Hungarian Jewish girl. They went to Auschwitz in 1944, but she survived. Afterwards, she met her husband, who's from They got married, the whole story. Her husband passed away a few years ago in his 90s. She was obviously infected by corona. Before Pesach, she was taken into the hospital, NYU. Listen to the story. It's a crazy story. Her, grand, her granddaughter told me the story yesterday, Sylvia Mashinsky. From here, from Muncie. She was taken to the hospital. And of course, they were putting ventilators on everybody. And she, a 98-year-old woman, said, no way, no way. Why? She did Bikr Chaylam for 40 years. 40 years Bikr Chaylam. And she said, she told her granddaughter, I knew what ventilators are like. And you know what she said? They told me, you're going to die, you're going to die. I said, I'm fine, I'm 98 years old, I lived a fine life, I'll die. She refused to allow them to put a ventilator. They called her son. They called her son who lives in Williamsburg. And they said, if you don't put on a ventilator on your mother, she is going to die. He said, listen, my mother has her mind, she is sober, she is aware, she is completely on top of her game. She says she doesn't want it, respect her wishes. You know what happened? She didn't put it on. She was the only one who survived. She tells her granddaughter. She says, everybody there died. Much younger than her. Relatives of her. And they're 60. said, she's the only one who survived. <laughs> I'm not making judgments here on anybody. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical expert. And in this area, I think the knowledge is, there's still plenty of ignorance. We have to figure things out. I'm not here. I'm not here uh, making a judgment about anything. I'm just telling you a story. A week later, she was out of the hospital. She celebrated Pesach with her family, with her son's family. She continued to live, function. On Gimel Tammuz, the third day of Tammuz, she passed away in her sleep. 98 years old, exactly the way she wanted. Peaceful in her sleep, 
in her own home. And her family, huge family, Baruch Hashem, paid their last tribute and bid farewell to her. And her granddaughter tells me at the funeral there was a lot of sadness, but there was also a lot of gratitude for such a life that was well lived. Here is a woman, 98 years old, came out of the worst calamity, the darkest moment in human history and Jewish history. But she was a representative of a whole generation of such women, young girls and boys who lost everything. And then somehow they found within themselves the courage, the faith, the fortitude, not only to wake up the next morning, but to get married, to build families, to raise families. And even though they had so many challenges on different levels, but nonetheless they would not allow the evil that they saw to blur their vision, to create fog in their lives. And they became heroes of the Jewish people, matriarchs, who gave children wisdom, perspective, morality, values, faith, hope, and allowed them to raise their own families with love and dignity and dedication. And I'm sure many of them made lots of mistakes and different things happened. Nothing is perfect and nobody is perfect. But you marvel at that. Where did this come from? It started with Adam and Chava who understood. When I see such darkness in the world, when I see such hate, when they saw the ashes in Auschwitz and Treblinka and Dachau, They had to make a choice. Conscious or subconscious, but everybody had to make a choice. Either I will become a victim of the darkness, or I will respond with unprecedented energy of light and love and hope. And they chose, thank goodness, they chose the latter. Either I will become a victim to this abyss, or... I will use this as a catalyst and a springboard to bring out from my innermost soul my deepest energy and fortitude and strength and faith and resilience and I will rebuild the Jewish world with pride and love and dignity and bequeath to children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. 4,000 years of Jewish hope and faith and heritage, Yiddishkeit, Torah, mitzvahs, the values that have sustained us through thick and thin over the last four millennia. When you watch such destruction, there's only one way to respond. You have to be able to say, I am going to introduce into this world infinite love, infinite faith, infinite hope, something that transcends any barriers, any limitations. Because when you see such destruction, It's so easy to become part of it in one way or another, even if just becoming depressed. And Adam and Chava had to see an act of absolute kindness with no expectation of reciprocity. And this taught them that in the face of such evil, there is hope. But the only way there could be hope is if you become single-mindedly dedicated to a life of infinite and absolute love, light, hope, healing, and redemption. Thank you very much. Have a beautiful day and a beautiful week. Let me take some questions and let me announce before I take the questions. Thursday morning, we have a 7.30 morning class. We will be discussing two types of life, the life of holiness versus a different type of life, a life in which you're intrinsically alive and a life in which you're trying to distract yourself from the pain because you're not really intrinsically alive. That's our topic Thursday morning, 7.30, right here on the yeshiva.net, or if you want to join us on Zoom. Thursday, 
10 o'clock a.m., we continue our new class in Rambam. We begin the fundamental laws of Torah, chapter 1, which is the first chapter of Rambam. Everybody is invited right here on theyeshiva.net. Let me take some beautiful questions. Okay, here we go. I'll start with the chat, and then I'm going to go over to the yeshiva.net questions. Okay, I finally understand now the way your mother dances at weddings with more zest than a teenager. Thanks so much for that story. Yes, my mother, God bless her, emulates her mother. Next question. Your mother learned from her mother. Oh, that's what I just said. Once she grabbed, Once I was at an event, at a wedding, and your mother, this woman is writing to me, your mother grabbed me to dance, and like you said... She danced in a way that I have never experienced before. This was, I think, the wedding of a Balchuva. And she danced with me in an incredibly powerful way. I never had such a dance before or after. And I want to tell you, from that experience, I derive strength every single day. Wow, that's very meaningful. You should share that with my mother. She showed me what true Simcha and Avas Yisrael looks like and feels like. Thank you for sharing that. That means a lot. That's my grandmother and that's my mother. Yeah. Okay, Rabbi, thank you very much. Amazing, a huge life lesson. Okay, beautiful. This was very inspiring, writing all the way from Panama. Welcome, Panama! (laughs) The next class in Rambam will be Thursday. Okay, next question. I was in your parents' home for Shabbos. I met your father of blessed memory. And I met your mother. May she be well. She is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. I'll tell that to my mother. But that's true. She is amazing. Let me go to the next questions. The next questions. I'm going to open up. Okay, right here. Here we go. Here we go. First question. Wow, great questions. Okay. Do we do anything on Moshe's yard site? Yes. I know that the Hever Kaddisha does something on Moshe's yard site. Rachel Emenu's yard site, Yud Alev Cheshven, people go to Kever Rachel. That's all true. But none of these yard sites are recorded in the Torah. That's what's so significant. We have traditions that Rachel passed away. Yud Alev Cheshven, the Gemara says that Moshe passed away. Zion Adar, that's true. But what is recorded in Chumash itself, obviously, is of a different level and different caliber. It means that God dictated Moshe's yardsite. He wants every single Jewish child to know Moshe's yardsite. Okay, next question. The observance of a yardsite by a family of somebody who passed away, or by a tzaddik, or by a gadol, or by a father, a mother, a great figure, are today common and known. But the date of the yardsite is not mentioned in Chumash. Were yard sites observed in ancient generations, or is this a a new idea that was developed later? Did they used to visit graves? Did they celebrate yard sites? Okay, that's a very interesting discussion. Visiting graves is a whole separate discussion by itself. There were those who opposed it, but uh, the universal Jewish custom has become that we visit grave sites of of parents and of of tzaddikim. And we already see that the spies, Kalev, went to the Maris HaMachpelah to pray at the resting place of the of the Avais. Uh, we know about Miran, the, the gravesite of Rav Shemim Bar-Yichai, and many other situations. But there were those who opposed it, that's true. In terms of commemorating a yard site, 
Um, I think this is something that develops in later generations. But my point is that the fact that the Torah mentions Aaron's yard site means the Torah wants us to know the day that he passed away, and this is significant. And we do know that the yard site is a significant day in terms of the influence that the soul has on our people on that day. Next question. The siege on Betar during the Bar Kokhba revolt is also commemorated at this time. Are we in the midst of such a siege? Many people are sick. The numbers are growing. We're in quarantine. Would you compare it to the siege of Betar? The siege of Betar is a whole different saga. The siege of Betar was Bar Kokhba revolted against the Romans and the Romans crushed the revolt brutally, sadistically in the year 136 after the Common Era six decades after the destruction of the second base Amikdash, according to Roman historians, around 560,000 Jews were murdered in Betar. There are other figures. It was one of the greatest calamities in Jewish history. So that's a whole other story. And Betar indeed was conquered during this time of the calendar as well. Next question. Thank you for the story about your grandmother. I can really relate to it. I'm watching you today, and uh, thank you for the story, and uh, thank you for the classes. Okay, thank you, thank you. Next question. Where is the Svasemes that I mentioned? Svasemes that I mentioned is in a sefer called Lekute Yehuda, Parshas Masai. You'll see it over there. There's a story I want to share with you. It was told by the Kloisenberger Rebbe, the Shefa Chaim Zatzal. There was an old woman in Krakow before the war. She had one request. She wanted to be buried in the old cemetery in Krakow where Rabbi Moshe Iserlish, the Ramah, the 16th century great rabbi of Krakow, was buried. It wasn't used for 200 years. Always, she saw, whenever she saw someone she knew, she used to ask that person, please give me a blessing to be buried in the old cemetery. Everybody blessed her, but they laughed because they knew it can't happen. The cemetery was not used anymore, but she always answered, Amen. The day she passed away, there was heavy rain and heavy flooding. It was impossible to bury her in the new cemetery. Even though they tried, it was not working. The Hebrew Kedusha had no choice. They were forced to bury her body in the old cemetery. What she asked for and what she prayed was given to her. Beautiful, beautiful story, Debancho. Thank you very much. Isn't it amazing that God chose the raven of all the other possibilities to teach Adam and Chava what to do and how to go on? Yeah, well, that's what we explained, that it was precisely the raven because of its unique, its unique characteristics. It was precisely the raven. Okay, next question. Thank you for the encouragement, especially during these times. Thank you so very much. Mashiach is supposed to come in our generation. When does this generation end? Listen, we hope and pray that Mashiach comes every day, especially during this time of the year. It's about time that the Gula should come and take the whole world and take the Jewish people out of exile. And I think our job today is to prepare for the Gula. And most importantly, not just to prepare in a passive way, but to prepare in an active way, which means that we start living the type of life that reflects the world during the Geula. When the Geula comes, when Mashiach comes, we will all experience ourselves as 
the manifestation of God's light in this world. I am God's light in this world. You're God's light in this world. And that's why we will all become one. The harmony of the entire universe and the entire planet and all people will be manifest because it will be clear that everybody and everything is a manifestation of divine infinity in this world. We can and should start living with this consciousness, with this attitude, with this perspective now. So you start living Geula now and that itself helps usher in the ultimate world of redemption when the Rebbeinu Shalom will send us Mashiach Tzitkenu Vimhei Rabbi Ameinu Amen. Thank you very, very much. Have a beautiful day. Uh, of course, we do uh, any mitzvah we can do. We do more mitzvahs, we learn more Torah, we give more tzedakah, we bring more light to our lives and to the world. But I think it's also something fundamental inside, a paradigm shift inside my soul, my heart. And that's what I was talking about. You see, many of us live with a lot of anxiety and a lot of trauma and a lot of fear and a lot of insecurity and a lot of doubt and a lot of difficult memories and difficult experiences And we respond to life from that place, which is human and natural because our brain develops what we call neural pathways of how we react to different situations and different comments and different experiences. Is it possible for me to actually put us, you know, eject the old CD and put in a new CD in my brain? And the new CD really sees myself and other people and every experience in the world in terms of Ein Oid Malvadai. I see myself as an ambassador of Hashem in this world. I am a representation of infinity in this world. I am infinite, not because my ego is big. On the contrary, because I am a conduit for Hashem's infinite light in this world. And that's the place from where I make my decisions. I speak my words. I communicate to myself and others. I do my actions I allow my thoughts to flow. So when thoughts of anxiety come in and negativity come in and, and alienation and jealousy and frustration and resentment and all other forms of negativity, they are not allowed to reign supreme. On the contrary, I look at them, I observe them, I watch them, I can even appreciate them for the information they're giving me, but I make sure to allow my innermost divine core to become manifest and to really make help me make the choices of how to pursue my life at this very moment. And when I look at those voices of toxicity, instead of seeing them as enemies, I realize, no, they are also manifestations of divine light because they are here to teach me something that I have to work on. Every time I'm getting a thought of anxiety, or depression, or negativity, or hate, or anger, or whatever it is, it's also God's manifestation. It's teaching me something I have to work on, something that is unresolved, maybe something that I have to deal with, and confront, and heal from. So we must, we, we start living in a world of absolute oneness, of absolute harmony. And in a practical way, it means that I should be able to actually tell myself, I am not my anxiety. I am not my thoughts. I am not my fear. I am not my challenges. I am not my trauma. I'm not even my body. I'm not even every emotion that I have. I am not my emotions and my thoughts and my trauma and my fear, my insecurity and my envy and my anxiety and my depression. I am not those. Who am I? I am divine infinity in this world. Even if right now I'm having sensations that are very bothersome and very disturbing and very negative, 
And if I can go into that place and treat all those negative sensations with compassion and know that even they are really alarm clocks, they are alarms, they are sounding alarms from Hashem to wake me up to a deeper place of living. That means living with the harmony of Einoid Malvadi right now. That is living in a world of Gula, living in a world of Mashiach. And when I can live that way, and I relate to other people that way, I see others that way, and I see every event from this perspective, everything changes. Your world changes. You live in a world of brightness. You live in a world of oneness. You live in a world of godliness. That, I think, is the great calling and opportunity of our time, of our day. We, uh, we discuss this a lot in our uh, early morning classes, 7.30, that we do Monday and Thursday and Friday. We, uh, we explore this. If you listen to the class I did uh, Monday morning, it's on the yeshiva.net. It says, Hasidus Monday, uh, what is Bittel? The second half of the class, we explored this at length. It may be helpful. I'm going to be continuing on this theme also Thursday morning, 7.30 a.m. on the yeshiva.net. So you're welcome to join us with a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or just a cup of warm water will also do the job. In fact, Dr. Leah says that's probably better. A cup of warm water is probably better for your uh, metabolism and for your circulatory system and digestive system. Right, Doctor? Okay, so we have here a comment from South Africa, another WOW class. I am from Johannesburg. This morning I woke up and I was battling to feel the let's get out of bed, let's move on. I went down to have breakfast. I share my breakfast with my computer, usually playing Scrabble. I opened my email. There was your email. Tears were flowing down my eyes. God sent me the cure. Your class, your presentation, the cure for a not happy day was your message. Thank you. Thank you for responding to my email. I'm right here. I, uh, and I am thanking you for all of this. Thank you. Listen, we are all conduits of Hashem to bring light into the world and bring kindness and bring hope and bring healing. Every single one of us is an agent of God's compassion to bring compassion and hope into the world. That's what all of us are here for. Each and every one of you and us is an ambassador of the creator of the world, an ambassador to bring love, light, hope, healing, redemption, faith, truth, as we always say. So this is, this is what we should be doing. And when you live and operate on that level of consciousness, you will always find incredible opportunities with yourself, with your family, with your community, and with the world. There's incredible opportunities to, to kindle sparks, to embrace hearts, to ignite minds, and to empower souls. So let's get on with our day and do just that. Chazak. This Shabbos is Shabbos Chazak. Chazak, Chazak. Venis Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and let's strengthen each other. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.